Hello and welcome. I'm Dandy Zhu, and you're listening to Digital Health Forward, a podcast dedicated to sharing the stories of healthcare entrepreneurs, leaders, and executives who are moving the digital health industry forward. Today, I had a chance to chat with Chrissy Farr, principal at Omer's Ventures. Previously, Chrissy was also a writer and frequent on-air contributor for CNBC, Fast Company, and Reuters News, among other publications reporting on digital health. She was raised in London and received degrees from University College London and Stanford University. In this episode, Chrissy and I talk about her time as a digital health journalist, her love for research and learning, and how that's also translated over to her approach to investing at Omer's. We deep dive into her perspectives in women's health, M&A, whole person care, and Chrissy shares her predictions for 2022, along with her takes on the most disruptive company of this year, most interesting merger and acquisition, and her favorite news source. Hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Chrissy. It's so good to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for bringing me on. I'm really excited for a chat. Yeah, it's been much anticipated. I know we connected even before your maternity leave, and a lot has happened since then, but I'm very glad we could make this happen. Yeah, the world has definitely changed a lot in the past six months. That's for sure. <laughs> well, we have lots to talk about and want to pick your brain on all things digital health today. So wanted to start a little bit with your personal story, though. I know you spent about a decade in journalism at a variety of places, um, including CNBC and Fast Company. But maybe we start there and if you could tell us a little bit about how you got involved in the healthcare industry and where that took you and how you really got into digital health. Yeah, I um, I do get asked about this a fair bit because my path has been extremely non-traditional, but I, I love talking about it because I think we need kind of more stories like this. When you hear from people who, you know, working in venture capital or working in tech, um, you often hear the story of how they grew up in Silicon Valley and were tinkering with computers from a young age and the path seemed so inevitable. And for me, it wasn't like that at all. I, I grew up in London. I didn't really have any or much access to tech. I wasn't interested in it. I didn't know anything about it. At my school, which was an all-girls school, um, they offered the girls cooking classes instead of IT. So I just didn't think this would be my my path at all. But I always loved to write. And I went and did a um, history degree at university. And um, while there, I got really involved with the student newspaper and magazine um, and ended up becoming a co-editor-in-chief of the magazine so that was really what pushed me into journalism. And I, I applied to a bunch of schools in America on a whim, ended up getting into Stanford. So I flew over there to California. I'd only ever been once before. Didn't know anyone. Um, it was a total culture shock and just kind of went to campus with low expectations um, of what I would end up doing, but just hope to work in journalism at some point. And while there, um, really just grew very passionate about the entrepreneurship I was seeing around me. And it was it was in that 2010, 2011 timeframe. So it was just crazy. Everything was happening. And I just couldn't believe that when I was 22 years old, that anybody would take my ideas seriously because I felt like, you know, so young. But in Silicon Valley, some of the most successful founders of all time had been, you know, college dropouts when they started their businesses. So it was just a total awakening. And um, I ended up going into tech journalism after college, and then made my way into health tech um, because I just found myself 
gravitating towards kind of healthcare um, for so many reasons. And I, I knew that the space would be emerging um, in part because of a lot of government regulation and, and changes that were happening at that time. So I saw I saw a big kind of um, opportunity brewing. I saw investors looking at it in a big way. And I thought, you know, I want to be the, the main person um, that's covering this beat and I want to be known for this thing. Um, and so that was my my path. And I'm happy to kind of touch on what uh, brought me into to VC, but um, very long winded answer to your to your uh, really thoughtful question. Thank you for sharing that with us, Chrissy. It's so inspirational to hear about how at such a young age, when you spotted these shifts occurring in the industry, you had the confidence and conviction to raise your hand, put yourself out there and say that you wanted to be that person covering digital health. It's incredible to think about because at the time it was so early on and few people really understood what digital health meant, right? And what the potential technology could have in changing healthcare. I want to learn a little bit more about what it was like being a journalist, I guess. What was that day-to-day? What did that look like and sound like? Did you did you just reach out to CEOs and entrepreneurs and want to share their stories or were there breaking news that you then were told you needed to go cover? Or like for those of us who don't know anything about journalism, I guess, what does that actually look like? So it's kind of a combination of those two things, but I was in business journalism, financial journalism, and so it was a lot harder than that. I was trying to I was trying to break news. I wasn't trying to look at a press release and then rewrite it. I was hoping to actually find out kind of non-public information oftentimes about public companies and publish it. And and that was kind of my job for many years. People yeah. that talked to me could get fired. It was it was you know, not a not a small deal, and it was it was hard. Um, but I was just the the fact that I I was able to do that and you know break some really big news. Um, you know, I just I just look back on that and I'm like, what what twenty something gets to see kind of the impact in real time of sharing some information about the industry that wasn't known previously. Um, and we have a whole process for how we validate our sources, and you know, there's a whole chain of command that you get with with kind of big mainstream institutions but yeah for most uh, business and financial journalists that that is the job and everything else is kind of the the stuff you do um you know from time to time to you know just sort of get to know people in the industry and and show that you're you're sort of on the beat but um you know that's not that's not what you're kind of getting judged on at the end of the day. The other piece of it is that if really big news does break and you're not the one that that's breaking it, you have to figure out unique angles, unique ways to kind of tell the story and and further the story. And so mm. all of that depends on having a really big network of people that that you can trust, that trust you and you know it can take years to to build that up. Yeah, I mean that's such an exhilarating position to be in it sounds like to be able to to break those news and actually have many, many people find out that way through you, right? As the as the source of information. So that's that's really cool to think about. Tell us a bit about how you wanted to how the transition to venture happened. I I had thought about it. It wasn't I wasn't being told every day that I should be doing it. And you know, it wasn't it wasn't the most obvious thing. I think most people who work in journalism that think of leaving are sort of exposed immediately to the idea of being in corporate communications. I always kind of knew that it probably wasn't going to be the path for me. I love, you know, more the kind of research and the learning and um, that aspect of journalism versus kind of 
the narrative and the story. So I, I was always interested in a role that could kind of help me do more of the, the research and um, also the, the networking, which I also loved. So I went and just had a bunch of conversations with different friends who had cool jobs. And I asked them, what does your day-to-day look like? What are some skill sets that, that you bring to your role? And um, where did you need to develop? And through that process, was able to get to a place where I realized that I wanted to be in venture. And after that, it kind of happened quite quickly that I, I was brought into Omer's Ventures. And um, a good friend of mine, Michael Yang, is, is the person that runs things um, over in the US. And so he thought of me um, when they were looking for someone to invest in digital health. So that was... Um, that process probably begun just over a year ago, and I've, I've now been at Omer's Ventures for a year, and it, it's been great. What is Omer's approach to investing? What stage do you guys usually come in at? Are there specific areas within digital health that are more so in the scope of what you focus on versus others? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so we tend to invest at the A, B, and C. Our check size ranges between 5 and $25 million. So we're uh, we're quite flexible. We in the U.S. we only invest out of four areas. So we do health tech, we do insure tech, prop tech, and then enterprise SaaS. And I I lead our health tech investing practice. The way that we try to do things to differentiate ourselves is that we take a very thematic approach to investing. So I wouldn't meet with a company just because they're raising. I would meet with the company because I'd been spending months and months learning about the particular space that they're in and had come to kind of my own set of conclusions about where that space was going. Mm-hmm. And that that also gives me some comfort that, you know, I'm not wasting the founder's time because I can at least kind of ask some some smart questions and get very deep on the weeds with, with them right away um, and potentially add some value down the line, being more than, than just a check. Given that, does that mean it's a bit more proactive in terms of outreach rather than reactive to inbound? Well, it's both. I mean, I, I definitely do outreach, but I also have been very public about my interests on my newsletter. So I think those that read it have a very good sense of what, what I'm looking at at any right. given time because I'll just get out and, and share it. So for the past six months, it's been behavioral health and I've been doing a lot of content around that. So uh, I may hear from people that are in behavioral health, which is great. Or you know, if there's a if there's a sense that there's a company I'd love to meet, I, I'm also kind of, for my time in journalism, just very happy to reach out and, and see if people will meet with me. Is the thesis around and the focus of, of a hypothesis mostly around a problem that you think should be solved through technology? Is it more of you know, an approach to solving it, such as this, a new business model? Or is there a way to dimensionalize the way you think about these trends and theses? Yeah, I I think it's, you know, a lot of different ways. I mean, we might look at a patient population, we might look at a specific condition. I also love the approach that Andreessen is taking by thinking through things like, um, you know, with a different sort of hat around the go to market. So they've really made a thesis this year around the infrastructure that digital health needs in order to scale. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think about that as like the thesis of digital health selling into digital health. And so that could definitely be a theme for us. Um, or we might pick behavioral health, which is more kind of focused around a condition state, or we could look at kind of payments as a theme. Um, so there's lots of different ways to to think through it. It's more about just kind of picking something that we think is underserved and and overlooked, and then just Mm -hmm. spending a bunch of cycles really trying to understand it uh, before we we consider making an investment. 
Yep. That makes sense. When you say underserved, overlooked, are there specific current trends that you're focusing in on there? I mean, I think a lot of digital health would definitely qualify in that category. There's very few things where I would say, you know, there's been enough investment. One one area that I'm really passionate about is women's health. I think it's just shocking that we have not done more there, that it took this long for a digital health, women's health company like Maven to get to, you know, this so-called unicorn status, like is, it just doesn't make any sense to me, especially when you consider that all 80% of healthcare buying decisions are made by women, Right. 70% of healthcare workers are women, Women are more likely to use digital health tools than men. We have long <laughs> lifespans. We have higher rates of illness. I mean, why is it that women would be always kind of the second cat, like the, the second thing to focus on? Think of how many men's health companies there are that started with men. Meanwhile, the statistics tell a totally different story. So that leads me to a place of wondering if it's really about just, you know, bias caused by the lack of diversity in VC and entrepreneurship. Right. Um, so while we've seen more investment in this area, I just get in, I get inflamed thinking about how long it took for us to get here. Yeah. Carolyn Whitty, the CEO of TIA, was actually the first, very first guest on the podcast. And we talked a lot about the frustrations that you just mentioned as well and how it doesn't make sense given the 80% ratio for purchasing decisions in healthcare. But it's, it's good to see that there's been a lot of progress. Within women's health, are there specific areas that you're, you're really excited about you think technology can really make a big impact on? I'm definitely passionate about, you know, what what's possible in fertility. I know there's been some attention there, but it's still incredibly expensive and out of reach for for most Americans. Meanwhile, you know, the need is clearly there with, you know, one in eight couples struggling with their fertility. So still think that there's that there's stuff to do there. Also, you know, thinking through behavioral health and things like postpartum depression. Um I also think the postpartum period is overlooked relative to, to pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd love to see more in things like cardiovascular health because women have a different experience of that than, than men. So, you know, we're more than just our, our reproductive system. And, you know, I think that's just the tip of the iceberg. There's also kind of the pelvic floor, like PT area, which again, I think needs a lot more attention. Um, menopause just starting to kind of gain traction. So just a lot to do in women's health. And, you know, the big question is going to be, should we fund all these companies separately or will there end up being kind of one one company to rule them all that's a one-stop shop for, for women at any time of their lives and at any age? Yeah, that's what I was thinking too is, who is best positioned to help solve some of these problems? Is it some of these new gen women's health specific companies that are looking end-to-end at different parts of the healthcare continuum? Is it you know, integrated primary care providers who also serve men, but maybe have specialization or the the knowledge to also effectively serve women in a unique way, or is it some other other approach? Right? I don't yeah. Know if you ha- yeah. I don't know. I think that that we're all trying to figure out this exact question at the same time. But you know, all of these pathways make sense to me, and it could be it could be a combination of them. Yep. Agreed. The other topic we saw in your Substack and second opinion was around M&A. And this has been obviously a very hot topic given the number of acquisitions happening in even just the past year. But I feel like after Teladoc Lovango happened, there's just been so many other pairings um, and the volume of acquisitions of partnerships have skyrocketed <laughs> in the industry. Um, are there specific acquisitions that have stood out to you either 
as ones that really made a lot of sense and resonated with you or, or ones that maybe confused you or surprised you? I think this year, as we look back on some of the acquisitions, it, it feels like it was all kind of inevitable. Things like Grand Rounds merging with Doctor on Demand and now that company is called Included Health. Like that made so much sense to me because I've always thought that telemedicine, especially kind of horizontal, one size fits all telemedicine is a bit of a commodity. So, you know, now most of the big telemed companies have been snapped up by somebody else, um, which makes more sense. Like it should be kind of a piece of a, of a solution and, you know, bringing doctors online in my mind kind of is, is table stakes. So right. all of that made sense. I feel like we'll just continue to see more kind of PE like roll-ups within all these vendors that are selling into the employer. You just hear over and over again that the employer is overwhelmed by various choices. And, and so I think that's kind of also going to happen and is already starting to happen. It's not enough to be just an MSK company or just a BH company. And it's also not how the human body works. Like we rarely have one thing, one condition that doesn't, you know, if you have diabetes, you you probably also have something else. Um, you know, being being ill and chronically ill um oftentimes leads to um a lot of behavioral health issues. And those and those behavioral health issues can make it very challenging to stick with treatment. Um, so I think we need to kind of take this whole person approach um, much more. And for that reason, like in my mind, it makes it makes sense. Yeah, I think from a assuming, you know, there is more of a consolidation and from a patient experience standpoint, there is more of a go-to one-stop shop that you can actually derive many experiences from. I I feel like that would be largely beneficial. Um, when we think about PE rollups or we think about just in general consolidation across some of these companies, does it ever give you concern that they will have much more bargaining power, you know, as a result, maybe access is impacted or pricing is increased. And even if the experience is better, it, it actually, there's sort of a trade-off there. I don't think the health plans would really be happy with there being one company in each category. Uh, they, they've kind of learned their lesson and now, you know, we'll look to, to have some competition between the digital health companies. So I, I often think about it as the rules of rule of three, but in any category, I think you're going to see three big players. It's not going to be one and it's not going to be 10, um, but it's going to be somewhere around that number that are able to achieve kind of scale um, and really kind of meet the, meet the needs of the market. So, you know, for some of those companies that are currently kind of number four, number five, unless they find a way to really differentiate themselves, I think those are the ones that'll get gobbled up. Three is the level in your mind of healthy level of competition, but still have perhaps efficiencies and not not all, all the duplication that might be happening right now in terms of effort and capital. Yeah. And you see it when you you know look at some of these businesses and, and who they've sold into. Right. There's only so many employers, especially at the kind of jumbo stage. So yeah. you know, you can't there's there's only so much to go around. Okay, well, I want to shift a little bit to a speed round. So answer with the very first thought that comes into your head as you hear this question. Fun. <laughs> um, the first is who in your mind is the most has been the most disruptive healthcare company of this year? Good RX. Why? Just the D2C focus in an area pharmacy that has historically not had, like had much focus on the consumer. I think that kind of focus on price and convenience has been has been really, like you said, disruptive. Mm-hmm. Most interesting, exciting merger or acquisition. 
Um, I would say the one I mentioned, Doctor on Demand and Ground Rounds. We are also flooded with information these days. Do you have a favorite health tech news source or forum? I would say, ooh, that's a hard one because I, I'm like, I read so much. Um, <laughs> okay, top three. <laughs> Let's do that news. Okay, uh, Business Insider does a really good job, and then I think uh, the Wall Street Journal has been upping their game recently as well. Great, most promising early stage startup to follow. A company called Oathcare in the women's health space. What do they do? Um, they provide a community and also clinical support to people who are becoming parents. And once they become parents, raising little kids, which, and I have an eight month old, so very essential for me. And so, you know, I just love what they do. Very cool. I will check them out. Okay. So want to now talk a little bit about predictions. Um, I think last year, maybe, or the year before I, I read your predictions for the following year. But now that we're nearing the end of this 2021 calendar year, would love to hear if you have any predictions for how the healthcare industry will continue to change next year. There are any big shifts that you anticipate? Ooh, I think my 2022 prediction is to see re- a lot of focus on pediatrics and teens. Where we saw it in the mental health area this year, um, in particular, we saw some a lot of focus on um, on pediatrics as well. I think it's going to go nuts in uh, 22 because we all saw with COVID just how hard it is to be mm-hmm. a working parent, and kids were really struggling when just kind of kept at home, having to do kind of remote school or hybrid school. It was just you know I think it's gonna we're gonna see kind of the effects of that, and so we'll see investment flowing into that space. And you said teens as well. Mm-hmm. Also for mostly you think behavioral health. Um, I, I think it'll be some behavioral health, but just pediatrics in general, maybe new models of pediatric clinics. And um, for teens, there's, you know, gynecology, there's sexual health mm-hmm. and education. There's a lot of areas as well as behavioral health. What about in the next next five to ten years? Sort of taking a step back, bigger picture. Maybe what are what are the aspirations, or if you're to to really dream of the most optimistic scenario, what would that look like for the health tech industry? I would say for America to pick a lane and either go single payer or do something kind of more decentralized. But this kind of crazy healthcare system that we have now is not working, and we need to we need to learn from other countries and watch what they're doing and and choose something else. And I, I hope that someday we can get there because there's just, we're, we're continuing to kind of drop and patients deserve better. I hope so too. And having watched the last decade or so unfold from the front lines as a journalist and also now as an investor, are there pitfalls or mistakes that we've made in the past that you think we are at risk of repeating in the future if we're not careful? Saying that something is overhyped just because there's a bunch of investment in it. For instance, behavioral health, a lot of investors now you're seeing, you know, say, I don't want to touch this space because there's so much interest in it this year. But when you look at like the problem and the pure like scope of that problem, I don't think we've come anywhere close to investing what we need to into behavioral health. And our last question, as you reflect on your journey as an investor, as a journalist, as a, as a professional in the space, what are some of the biggest lessons you've learned personally or professionally or words of advice you would want to impart on our listeners? 
ask questions. Don't don't be afraid to ask just because somebody seems like they have a really big job or they're really busy. Some people won't respond, but a lot of people do and people want to be helpful. So, you know, I think you'll be surprised just by reaching out and asking. I think that has probably been the biggest learning I've personally experienced through doing this podcast. Actually, you know, it's really surprised me how many people have been open to sharing their stories and responding to cold emails, um, including yourself. So I think that that really resonates and I appreciate the encouragement. Yeah, it's it's a definitely a good a good life skill and one that I struggled with as well. Anything else, Chrissy, that you want to share with our listeners? No, I think that's great. You asked a lot of fantastic questions. I really enjoyed the the discussion. Thanks so much. Mm-hmm.